All right, everyone, um, good morning. It is such a joy to be here again. Um, this is my last time to teach this semester and I just wanted to thank y'all for um, the privilege that it has been to be able to share with y'all this year. Um, I, I can think of like truly very few higher honors than just getting to study God's word together. Um, and today we are entering chapter three of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And it's kind of funny because our passage starts off with the word finally which in most letters would be a signal that Paul is starting to kind of land the plane, right? We're gonna wrap things up, but not quite. Paul's letter of correction and encouragement is not quite done yet. We've got a few more weeks to go. The word finally here is kind of more of a transition. It's kind of like a call to pay attention. It's a renewed request for cooperation and understanding from the Philippian church regarding Paul's appeal um, and call for the Philippians to with joy, seek to live in Christian unity and hope following the pattern of Christ's death and resurrection. And we have seen Paul make this appeal in a number of ways. Most recently, right, we saw it last week in how he gave us examples of faithful service in his report of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And this week, Paul is gonna kind of kick it up a notch, so to speak. He will renew his call for joy among the Philippians. He will step onto what um, I would kind of say is one of his most frequent soapboxes throughout his letters um, to warn the Philippians of those who try to add their own standards to Jesus's saving work. And in his warning, he will answer for the Philippians one of our most fundamental human questions. How do I know that I'm okay? What makes a worthy life? So let's read this passage together and then dive in. So Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have re reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So as some of you probably know, the Academy Awards were this past Sunday night. And apart from this year's incident between Will Smith and Chris Rock, for as long as I can remember, the Oscars have always been one of my favorite nights of the year. I always have loved movies and I get such a thrill out of this night of glamour that celebrates them. Every year my goal is to see all the best picture nominated films before the big night and it is something that I've been able to pull off successfully since the 2014 movie lineup. I'm just going to pat myself on the back for that. <laughs> I fill out a ballot, I host or I attend a watch party and though my love for the Oscars is pretty unconditional, I'm also the first to admit that the whole thing is a little ridiculous and in need of some revising. As viewership has gone down every year, the producers of the show are making pretty desperate attempts to appeal to a broader audience. 
And long story short, all the changes aren't exactly working. <laughs> there are a lot of factors, I think, that contribute to this, which is something I could talk about for much longer than any of y'all are likely interested in hearing. <laughs> but at the heart of the issue lies this. The Academy's standard of measurement for what makes a film worthy of an award is vastly different from the standard of measurement that the average moviegoer uses. There's even a term, right, that gets kind of thrown around in the film community to describe movies that get created so it seems just like really for the chance of getting nominated or trying to meet Oscar standards. You might know this pattern, right? It's a biopic about a musician, or even better, a character that will require some sort of physical transformation of the actor playing him or her. It's these big historical dramas that are especially um, Oscar worthy if they're about Hollywood. <laughs> it's all these melodramas that leave the viewer Google, Google searching for the film synopsis as soon as the credit starts because you aren't really sure exactly what just happened. And then upon further investigation, you realize, okay, I think that was kind of the point. <laughs> they call these films Oscar bait. Filmmakers know what the Academy likes and they seek to make something that meets those standards. And then they launch these expensive promotion and lobbying campaigns with the hope of securing a nomination and a win. And upon winning or getting nominated, an, asker, an actor might get more offers for different diverse roles a director might be trusted to pursue a project that has been previously rejected by a studio, but what does it really mean for your average lover of the movies? Not much. Every year, the Academy's influence gets less and less, and the chances of people having heard of all the nominated movies, much less having seen any of them, gets less and less. The Academy's standard of measurement is off. It's not necessarily bad. In fact, Coda, that won Best Picture this year, is absolutely phenomenal, like 10 out of 10 recommend. But if you're looking to define the standards of what gives a movie value, what makes it worth making, what makes it worth watching, it's not the Academy's standards. And here in chapter three, Paul calls into question the standards of measurement both he and others within the church at large historically used to determine what makes a worthy life. And he concludes that the standard here too is off. A question that has long been answered by an assessment of heritage, connection, education, and action, Paul argues in Christ has a new answer. So Paul starts in verses two and three by warning the Philippians to look out for dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Paul's language in verse two is, is biting. Honestly, I don't really need any more context to draw the conclusion that a group of dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh is a group I would like to avoid. <laughs> but who exactly is Paul referring to? There is some debate, but the language is reminiscent of a group of teachers known in that day and age as the Judaizers. This would be a group teaching that any Gentile converting to Christianity would need to be circumcised. Judaizers are not quite as obviously the problem for Philippi as they are opposed to the church in Galatia. Um, we can guess that the community of the Philippian church, though, is largely Gentile. If we think about those first three members, Lydia, the slave girl, the Roman jailer, but it's hard kind of based just on these two verses to know exactly what the problem is here. Is Paul warning the Philippians to be look on the lookout for these teachers or is he calling out behavior already going on in the church? You get a much clearer picture of the Judaizers in Galatians, but basically what they argued is that the requirement for salvation was kind of like an equation. Salvation equaled Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus these Jewish rituals. And I think often we forget how closely the early Christian church was connected to its Jewish roots. And thus, many Jewish practices were incorporated into the church in those days. 
Um, David Chapman, in his commentary, makes the case that it's not entirely surprising that some of the Pharisees who had joined the early Christian community were among the first to insist that Gentile converts to this Messianic Christian movement also must be circumcised. If a Gentile was converting to Judaism, they would have had to undergo circumcision. But Paul is drawing a clear line in the sand, and he's saying that the gospel is not salvation equals Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus Jewish ritual, but the gospel is salvation equals Jesus plus nothing else. Salvation just equals Jesus. There's nothing else required. To put no confidence in the flesh, as Paul writes, mean that we put no confidence in human existence apart from God. And Paul makes the argument, as Chapman puts it, that to mandate circumcision is, in effect, to say that salvation comes through obedience to the law, through works of the law. Chapman goes on to say that physical circumcision was to be a visible sign and seal of the inner covenant reality. Having been crucified, buried, and raised with Christ, and having had the Spirit of God poured out into our hearts, God has accomplished an inner work of redemption that far surpasses a mere outward sign. Moreover, God has always intended that such redemption reach beyond the physical confines of Israel and involves all the nations. Circumcision was never the covenant. It was never the means by which God was relating to his people personally and permanently. It was the sign and it was the seal of an internal circumcision of the heart, as Moses writes in Deuteronomy 36, which reads, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. This is why Paul is using this language, mutilators of the flesh, because the Judaizers have the wrong standard of measurement. They have placed the physical expression higher than the internal reality secured for us in Christ. Paul calls them out as evildoers because this is idolatry, and they are malevolently opposed to the righteousness of God and working on this behalf. Paul holds nothing back when he calls them dogs, as this was a word often used by Jews to describe the Gentiles. Think about the story of the dog eating the crumbs under the table told in Matthew 7. In this language, Paul is saying that to require Gentile converts to be circumcised makes the Judaizers as foreign and as far removed from the gospel of grace as the Gentiles were considered to be from the nation of Israel. There is no human act that can secure for us righteousness. There is nothing we can do that surpasses what God's grace does for us. For in Christ, we are the circumcision, the one who worships um, by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus, and who do not put confidence in the flesh. By God's grace, our lives are the sign and symbol of the eternal reality that God's grace has given us. So one last 30 Rock reference for the year. <laughs> but Paul in this moment reminds me of this kind of very random moment in an episode that features a character named Tracy Jordan, who's leaning on a New York City trash can, like literally he's like leaning like this, and he's talking to a pigeon, as one does. And this pigeon is eating French fries out of the garbage can. And Jordan, with all the sincerity and seriousness of a friend giving you a pep talk, remarks to the pigeon, Stop eating people's old french fries, pigeon. Have some self-respect. Don't you know you can fly? <laughs> and Paul, in a way, is arguing much the same thing, insisting on these old rituals using any other measure to define our worth apart from God's grace is like settling for people's old thrown-out french fries um, when we have the ability to fly. Paul, in verse 8, calls it rubbish. And the professor from my Philippians class, Kyle Wells, said that the, actually the King James translation of dung as opposed to rubbish, is a more accurate translation of the original Greek. Not just something worthless, but something emotive and disgusting, 
and the most accurate translation is likely human feces, which is not a phrase I ever thought that I would say up here. <laughs> and I bet if you think about it, you can think of a more emotive word that I would have been even more uncomfortable saying up here <laughs> that we could really use to compare and capture Paul's true meaning. So honestly, my comparison to pigeons eating New York City trash isn't so far off from the emotion and disgust this word would have stirred among Philippian readers. Rubbish. Integral to Paul's argument is his own autobiographical report or resume. Paul is making the case that he had a life set up for confidence in the flesh. He checks all the boxes for prestige, for success, for influence. As David Chapman puts it, Paul is briefly going to depart from what he considers true markers of spiritual circumcision in order to show that he himself could have excelled on the external calculations of religion being championed by the Judaizers. For Paul to agree with the Judaizers would be advantageous to him, based on the world that raised him. But all of that lost its appeal, its allure, its meaning when he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul did not sit down and contemplate which standard of measurement for his life was better. He didn't make a pro-con list weighing the options of his own achievements and origins versus God's abundant grace. God's grace left him with no choice but to lose everything else. Knowing Christ, being found in him, being seen with his righteousness changed the value of everything else. None of his credentials, none of his zeal had anything to offer apart from being used by God and being able to participate in God's bigger narrative. The message for the Philippians is this. If Paul, who has everything to gain, touting these physical and ritual markers of religious worth, instead chose to compare them to dung, why would the Philippians, who had no religious clout or claim, rely on circumcision and the keeping of the law over the work of Christ? So let's take a little bit of a deeper look at the, Paul, at the credentials that Paul is discarding in verses 5 through 6. So first, Paul reports that he was circumcised on the eighth day. And what this reveals to us is that Paul's family cared about obedience to God's law. To circumcise a male baby on the eighth day is a ceremonial mark that gets established in the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17:12, and repeated as part of the Mosaic law again in Leviticus 12:3. Paul came from a family that respected religious authority and tradition and passed it down generation to generation. Paul's life started with obedience to God's law and with integration into God's covenant. And then next, Paul reports that he is of the people of Israel. What this reveals is that Paul's got a citizenship and a racial descendants that creates opportunity for him. Inclusion in God's covenant community was for him a birthright. And not only that, but he is not subject to the limits of conversion. Much like someone born outside of the United States can become a citizen, but can never become president, Gentile converts to Judaism had limits um, compared to native-born Israelites like Paul. And then next, Paul tells us that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin has a history of importance within the history of Israel. It was the tribe of King Saul, and it's the only one of the 12 tribes to remain attached to the tribe of Judah following Solomon's death when Israel splits into the northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom's capital, Jerusalem, was actually within the tribal borders of Benjamin. Paul's ancestral lineage is even something to boast in. My family gets a lot of excitement about being related to a man named Timothy Matlack, who penned the Declaration of Independence. He kind of worked as like a secretary of sorts for Thomas Jefferson, and so it's his handwriting that you see in the original document. It's a great fun fact, great at parties, but it's never been a connection that I really think has changed the way someone thought of me or has given me more worth. But if you remember Paul's name before his conversion, his name was Saul. 
And this is a connection, this idea of being a part of the tribe of Benjamin that gave him a sense of belonging. His family wanted him to know where he came from. Um, and it's something that they wanted him to boast in and identify with and to proclaim just with his name. So next, Paul identifies himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, which sounds like a repeat of being of the people of Israel. But really what this means is that he was able to speak his ancestral language, Hebrew or Aramaic. This was his language of origin as opposed to the Hellenistic Greek, which was the main speaking language of Jews and converts of the time. So having been trained in Jerusalem, Paul's language would have had no taint, so to speak, of Hellenist um, Greek. Just like dialect and accent is one of the most obvious signs of class and privilege in the UK, Paul's language would have communicated his prestigious education and his upbringing. Everything in Paul's life was setting him up for success within the world he grew up in. And not only did Paul inherit privilege, but we can see that his parents worked hard for him to maintain it. They obediently circumcised him on the eighth day. They sent him to be trained in Jerusalem. I've never given Paul's parents much thought, but seeing Paul's life laid out like this, I can only imagine how hard they worked for him to have the right connections, the right behavior, the right education, the right life. And Paul, what he does is he takes this privilege he was born with, and at first he really does his family and his people proud, and he uses it to pursue the three key values of first century Judaism, law, zeal, and righteousness. And he goes on to talk about these specifically. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, meaning he sought out the highest possible education in Jewish religion. He received the best training to learn what the Jewish culture understood to be the most accurate understanding of the law and to be the most righteous among Jewish leadership. Obviously, Jesus has a lot of critiques for the Pharisees within the New Testament, but still culturally, they would have had a lot of influence, a lot of admiration, and a lot of significance among their people. And then he goes on to say, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul speaks of his zeal again in Galatians 1.14, touting that his zeal made him stand out among his peers. He sought to promote Judaism and to silence heretics, and thus he was known as one who persecuted the church. And as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. And this one kind of causes me to pause a little bit. Paul has been building his resume in here. It kind of sounds like he's starting to fluff it up a little bit. <laughs> How could anyone be blameless under the law? But with his zeal, his education, David Chapman writes that it is likely that by the measurement of his Pharisee um, like peers, Paul not only knew what commandments he had to keep, he followed them to the letter. So if the standard is the Pharisee's view of the law, Paul is blameless on that account. So Paul not only met, um, but he exceeded every measure of success created for him by his parents and culture. Within his bubble, Paul had every reason to see himself as successful, as living a worthy life, as being okay. And he would have been seen this way by his peers as well. In Paul's first century Jewish world, it was all about where you came from, who you knew, and what you did with those connections. And when I think of it in those terms, I kind of feel like the author of Ecclesiastes. There really is nothing new under the sun. These seem to be the standards of our lives in 21st century America too. As many of you know, um, when I graduated from college, I took a job with RUF, which is the campus ministry branch of the PCA, and I worked as an intern at the University of Tennessee. And to their full credit, they did come around and were incredibly supportive of this decision, but let's just say the internship lifestyle and financial situation was not exactly my parents' best hopes for me upon graduating college. <laughs> it didn't exactly meet the standards of success that I grew up in. Coming out of the worlds of privilege and success that were normalized both in the high school and the college I attended, 
Even the months leading up to college graduation, it was very clear that I had picked a trajectory that was different from a lot of my friends and peers. And this was most evident to me the Christmas of 2017. So it's a year and a half after graduating from college, and I'm still living in Knoxville, I'm working for RUF, and I come home to Fort Worth for Christmas. And I get together with some of my high school friends, who, who I um, am still great friends with to this day, and we got together this time to tour the home of one of my dearest friends since the seventh grade, and this was not just any house, but one that she was building with her new husband from the ground up. <laughs> Everything about my life at that point felt like the opposite of what I was seeing that day. Me, single, living with five other housemates on an RUF intern budget, AKA I was eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly, could not really wrap my head around it. Someone my age being at a place of stability in which they could build a house. And I always wanna be known as someone who can celebrate my friends regardless of my own circumstances. So I braced myself and I walked in the house and I was repeating the phrase, comparison is the thief of joy, comparison is the thief of joy, in my head with every breath. And I tried to go all in on the tour with excitement and enthusiasm. I was commenting on the light fixtures she'd picked out, the colors, I was dreaming with my friends about parties, future children, the whole thing. And this enthusiasm got me in trouble when we went into the backyard. It's a small yard that backs up to the Trinity, and I wanted to see, you know, more. Get a different angle on the house, see the river, all this kind of stuff. So without even thinking, I just stepped off the porch. I didn't look down, and I immediately stepped into what would one day be a yard, but in this moment was a mud pit. <laughs> the house was a new construction project, so no sod had been laid yet, and it had clearly rained recently because I sunk into the mud almost two inches. My shoes were covered in this thick layer of yuck, and I was stuck. And of course, I was the only one who had done this. <laughs> Everyone else had noticed and stayed on the porch. I didn't even feel like I could take a step back onto the patio, like that's how gross my shoes were. So I removed my shoes, you know, like did one of those balancing acts, and I ran through the house in my socks and just dumped them in the front yard. And my life has hardly ever felt more metaphorical than in this moment. Here I was touring my friend's beautiful new home that she had planned for, dreamed of, and I couldn't even walk through it without posing a threat with my muddy shoes and my lack of a five-year plan. <laughs> it took minutes of scraping my shoes off on the curb before I was even in a state to get back in my friend's car to drive away. Honestly, I felt like rubbish in comparison to the standard of worth and value much of my life had been centered around and I was seen accomplished before my very eyes by my friend. Marriage, wealth, independence, stability, a space of your own to decorate and fill, home ownership, heck, even granite countertops. All these measures that had been communicated to me as boxes I would be able to check when my life was marked by success, by value, and worth. I'd been clinging to all these measures um, Sorry, I'd been clinging to all these measures of what would tell me I was okay. And suddenly I felt really behind because my friend was checking off all the boxes and I could check off none of them. In that moment at my friend's house, I left feeling less than the standards I knew. Paul's words here confront and call us to consider the values that shape our standards of measurement for success and worth. Our key values might not be law, zeal, and righteousness like they were for the first century Judaism, but I think it's important to ask ourselves what are the key values in 21st century America that tell you you're successful, that your life is worthy, or simply that you're okay? And how do they manifest themselves? What are the measures we cling to in order to believe that we are okay? Are you like me, looking for security in marriage, wealth, independence, stability, home ownership, granite countertops, or is it informed by other things? Was it the major you picked in college? Is it your decision to be a working mom, or maybe your decision to not be a working mom? Is it the education choices that you're making for your children? Is the brands that represent, are represented in your closet? 
Is it your tax bracket? Is it your zip code? Is it your relationship status? Is it the attractiveness of your family on a Christmas card? Is it your travel history and experiences? Is it your sense of humor? Is it the number of books you read? The book club you belong to? Your reach and influence on social media? There is so much we cling to to define ourselves as worthy. But as I reflect on the story I just told, I could have also kind of twisted it another way. There's a way to tell the story of my muddy shoes at my friend's house from another set of standards, and sometimes I find myself doing that. Standards not of the world that I was raised in or the institutions that educated me in which I feel very far behind, but religious standards that instead celebrate the sacrifices that I made to serve in ministry in the first place. My bravery for following God's call for my life and going to a new place to serve and witness to God's character for college students instead of selling out, so to speak. A story in which I was out there doing big things for Jesus and his kingdom and his church. This version of events is one that fuels my pride and instead of being belittled by standards of measurement I don't live up to, I'm holding onto these measures of religiosity like Paul that tell me I'm okay because I'm more faithful than my peers. What are the key values of your religiosity that tell you that you are okay? Is it the financial sacrifices you've made for the church? Is it the faithfulness of your attendance? Is it your volunteer history? Is it the fact that you can trace back generations of family in the Presbyterian church? Is it that you made your kids memorize the shorter catechism before they were able to get their driver's license? Is it the authors that you can reference or the conferences that you have attended? Nothing on either of these lists of standards is inherently bad. They represent decisions that matter and that God is at work in. They represent living faithfully and serving the church and God's mission. Paul has called us throughout this letter telling us he wants humility, obedience, generosity in the church, but he knows that these behaviors are rubbish apart from a relationship with Christ. Both in the world and inside the church, our attempts to answer the question of what define my worth is so full of ourselves. We buy into this you are what you do mentality that has invaded the culture and invaded the church. But just as Paul has drawn a clear line in the sand against the Judaizers by saying that the gospel is not Jesus equals, uh, salvation equals Jesus plus circumcision or salvation equals Jesus plus Jewish rituals. Instead, the gospel is salvation equals Jesus. There is nothing else required. Paul urges us to draw the same line for ourselves. In Christ, we are not defined by what we do, but what God has done for us. God does not relate to us with this mindset of, what have you done for me lately, but with a heart that desires relationship. The gospel is not Jesus plus perfect Bible study attendance. The gospel is not Jesus plus vocational ministry. The gospel is not Jesus plus a clean house or Jesus plus perfectly behaved children. To put no confidence in the flesh means we put no confidence in human existence apart from God. David Chapman puts it this way. The gospel calls us to get rid of any of our attempts to merit salvation and a right standing before God. There is no human act that can secure for us righteousness. There is nothing we can do that surpasses what God's grace has already done for us. For in Christ, we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who do not put confidence in the flesh. By God's grace, our lives are merely a sign and a symbol of the, eternal, the internal reality well, eternal and internal reality that God's grace has given us. Our lives reflect God's covenant. They do not earn it. In contrast to a resume that is all about ourselves, either because we meet every standard or we feel shame for falling behind, 
The same grace that changed the trajectory of Paul's life on the road to Damascus is on offer for us. The invitation to participate in God's narrative instead of our own. In the gospel, we rewrite our story. We recognize the rubbish and we cling instead to Christ. We find freedom and rest in the righteousness that is not earned by meeting standards, but is instead given through um, and on the basis of faith from God. The opportunity to know Christ Jesus as Lord because in covenant, we are known personally and permanently by a God who loves us sacrificially. God's grace is not something we can reverse, it's not something that we can add to, and it's not something that we can diminish. It is a gift and it is offered to us for the sake of a relationship that follows. Christ's pattern of life and death. It is being personally known and permanently found with God through Christ that produces joy. I'll close us this morning with a quote from St. Augustine's Confessions. Um, it's on your handout. And Augustine writes, Oh, the twisted roads I walked. Woe to my outrageous soul that hoped for something better if it withdrew from you. The soul rocks back and forth on its back, onto its side, and then onto another, onto its stomach, but every surface is hard, and you're the only rest. But look, he says to God, here you are freeing us from our unhappy wanderings, setting us firmly on your track, comforting us and saying, run the race, I'll carry you. I'll carry you clear till the end, and even to the end, I'll carry you. Might the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord free us from our unhappy wanderings and set us firmly in an identity that measures success through the lens of God's grace. Amen.